Welcome to The Thought Hackers, the show where you will learn how your mind works and discover how to change your thinking from leading experts and through inspiring stories. Good day, everyone. My name is Nathan Siegel. I'm here with my colleague Hamish Baston out of Australia, and we are The Thought Hackers. With us today is a man by the name of Johan Hari. He is a New York Times bestselling author. His book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, has been translated into 15 languages and is currently being adopted into a major Hollywood film and into a nonfiction documentary series. He is one of the most viewed TED Talkers of all time. His talk, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction is Wrong, has, along with the animation based on it, been viewed more than 20 million times. He's written over the past seven years for some of the world's leading newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Guardian, the Spectator, Le Monde Diplomatique, uh, the Melbourne Age, and Politico. He has appeared on leading TV shows, including HBO's Real Time with Bill Mayer. And he's currently the author of Lost Connections, which is a book about depression. Johan, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Hey, it's great to be with you. I should apologize to your listeners because I uh, hurt my back recently and I've taken some painkillers for it. So if I'm le markedly less coherent in this interview than I normally am, <laughs> blame the drugs. But anyway, sorry, I apologize. So I was really intrigued when I saw this post that was made, either you made it or your publicist made it, to do with depression. I watched it. Uh, I shared I, I think it was either I did it or Hamish did it. But when I saw it, it was just like, wow, a whole bunch of light bulbs went on. And when I listened to what you had to say and read a bit about it, it really got my attention. And so what I'm really curious about, like you, you, you've been through quite the journey, but what made you decide to write a book? About depression, you mean my most recent book? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Well, the generally when i write books it's because there's something i don't know that i want to learn learn about and try to understand and for me with depression there were these two mysteries really hanging over me the first was i'm 39 years old almost every year i've been alive depression and anxiety have increased in the united states and across the developed world and i thought well why why is it going up so much when is this going to end what would end it what would end this this growing epidemic and there was a kind of more personal mystery, which is very related to that, which is when I, I was a teenager, I went to my doctor and I explained that I had this feeling like pain was bleeding out of me. I couldn't control it or regulate it. I felt very ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story about why I felt this way that didn't seem to quite match with the fact that depression, anxiety had been growing so much. He told me an exclusively biological story. He said, well, we know why you feel this way. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. It makes them feel good. Some people naturally lack it. You're clearly one of them. All you need to do is take these drugs and you'll feel better. So I started taking a, a drug called Paxil. I did feel a really significant boost um, for a couple of months. Then this feeling of pain started to come back quite rapidly. I went back to my doctor. He said, oh, I didn't give you a high enough dose. Gave me a high dose again. I felt a boost again. This feeling of pain came back. And I was really in this cycle until for 13 years I was taking the maximum possible dose that you're allowed to take. At the end of which I was still depressed and was experiencing all sorts of horrible side effects like massive weight gain. Um, and so I wanted to understand what was really going on. Um, so I ended up going, as you say, on this big, long, long journey. It was um, 
three years, I went over 40,000 miles. I wanted to meet the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and people who have very different perspectives from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil where they banned advertising to see if it would make people feel better, to a lab in one of the best universities in the US where they were giving people psychedelics to see if that helped. And I think, you know, I learned many things, but to me, the, 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 the kind of core of it was, um, I realized that until I went to my doctor when I was a teenager, I thought my depression was all in my head meaning I was just being weak, I needed to man up. And then for the next 13 years, I thought it was all in my head, meaning it was just a chemical imbalance in my brain. But what I learned on this journey is there's actually scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are indeed biological. One is your genes, the other is real brain changes that happen, although I don't think a chemical imbalance is the right way to describe them for reasons I can explain if you want. But, but actually most of the causes are not in our heads they're in the way we're living. They're specific factors in the way we're living. And that opens up a very different set of solutions that should be offered alongside chemical antidepressants. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's what got my attention is when I read that, it I felt an instant uh, alignment inside me because it matched what I had thought about with depression. I remember having a major argument with a psychologist. He was also a teacher of mine for a number of years. And he gave me the genetic story, and I said I refuse to accept that because if I accept it and I'm depressed, then I can use the genetic thing, genetic uh, thing, as an excuse to not get better. And that didn't go over very well. But well, I think we need to be careful about that because the, there's a very real genetic factor playing out in depression, although it's often misunderstood or misrepresented. Um, okay. And so I can talk through how how it actually works. So. Um, the the way we measure um, the genetic component of pretty much anything is surprisingly crude, uh, but it's still one of the best ways of measuring it, which is we compare identical twins and non-identical twins. So if something is more common than identical twins, we can measure how much more genetic it, how much more it's genetically determined, because obviously identical twins are more genetically similar than non-identical twins. And we know that's how we know, for example, that 90% of your height is genetically determined. Um, and it's how we know that between 30 to 40% of your susceptibility to depression and anxiety is, is genetically determined. And the science behind that is very robust. And there are people who deny there's any genetic component to depression. I think they're, they're, they're clearly wrong. The science is, is very clear. But there's, it's important to understand what that science does and doesn't mean increases your sensitivity but it doesn't determine your fate right so for example there was a study in new zealand that looked at uh, by by professor absalom caspi it's one of the biggest um studies of the genetic genetic population population study of genes uh, and and what it found was there's a specific gene it's called the h5tt gene which does make you more susceptible to depression but and this was really important it only made you more susceptible to depression if you went through trauma or if you became acutely lonely if you carried that gene and neither of those things happened to you you were no more likely to become depressed than anyone else what that tells us again is really important to stress that your genes don't determine your fate they they can make you in the same way everyone knows this about for example i only have to you know eat one kfc chicken leg and i put on loads of weight i have friends who can eat you know a whole bucket and they don't put on any weight right we all know that there's some genetic variability but i still need to eat the kfc right <laughs> i'm not gonna put on the weight if i don't eat the kfc if i just eat salad, i'm not gonna do it right so 
that, that's an instance of where we can see your genes make you more susceptible to something in the environment, but there has to be the environmental component as well. And me and my friend who, uh, me put on, puts on weight very easily and my friend who put, finds it very hard to put on weight put us in a famine zone and we, we would both be, we'd weigh the same. Do, do you see what I mean? Hmm. So it's important yes. to not deny the, the biological components. The biological components are real. My criticism isn't with the argument that there's some biological components to depression and anxiety. My argument is with the people who've only told us that story or with yes. that, how that story has become so dominant in the, rather than being one important part of a much more complex picture. Yes. The other part of the argument was, yes, there might be a genetic component. But there was, number one, there was no, um, he was just telling me without actually testing me. So that was number one. But number two, I said to him, no, I don't agree with that. I, it's because of where I grew up and the environment that I was in which caused me to develop this or learn this, whatever you want to call it. And I just didn't buy it. And I thought if I could change my environment or change what it is that was going on inside me, that I could somehow find a way to get better. Now, I didn't know if any of that was true. I had no idea. But when I came across your book and I read some of what you had to say, it's like, got it. I, I agree. Yeah, I think you've gone to a really important thing, which is if, you, if doctors tell their patients uh, – an overwhelmingly or exclusively biological story. In my case, it was, oh, it's just you've got a broken brain. And in your case, it sounds like the doctor was saying it was just about your genes. Firstly, that's not true. So doctors shouldn't tell people things that aren't true. But, but secondly, what, 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 I mean, there's, there's some truth in it, but to say it's just that is not true. Um, but, but more importantly, what that tells people, and this is, I think, the, the, the biggest kind of perspective shift I have to, had to make when writing my book, Lost Connections, was if you tell people an, an exclusively or, or overwhelmingly biological story, what you're saying to them is your pain is meaningless, right? It doesn't mean anything. It's just you're like a machine with broken parts, right? And, and that is a really – first, it's not true, but second, it's a really disempowering message that cuts you off from finding the sources of pain in your life that, that, that you can, that's often the individual can do something about and, much, and, and always the society can do something about. Um, and I think that's that's really important. You know, everyone listening to your show knows that they have natural physical needs. Obviously, mm. you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. Um, there's equally strong evidence that our, that human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. Mm. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. Our culture is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. Yeah. And that's it's not the only thing that's going on here, but that's one of the reasons why we have this big epidemic of depression and anxiety. And if on top of that, you, you have, um, you know, doctors, and I want to stress most doctors know better than this, but if you, on top of that, you have doctors just telling people a biological story, they can't make sense of what's happening to them. And that cuts us off from finding better solutions. And a big part of my book, Lost Connections, is about the better solutions we can find. And certainly with the medical professions, realising that this is the way that they're trained with that biological side of it, with the medication, that that's that's what they're taught so that's all they know so that's the only information they can really give i mean you do get a lot of a lot of doctors out there who do sort of look at different holistic ways of doing things as well who have a good balance in, in how they communicate with their patients but generally that's the way they're taught so it's it's no fault of theirs that 
that's the only path that they're going down. It's all I know. But you know, I'm 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 very big with what you're saying about these other outside factors. The the, the you know what we see in our world, what the way we look at it, and the way we filter everything, then creates the thinking that we have towards it. Um, and I think that that's essentially where you're sort of going with the these other seven factors. Is it that we create this thinking? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot in what you, in what you just said. And it's important to say scientists do know much better. Um, it was quite striking to me going and interviewing people um, to realise, I mean, one of the most painful parts of the research was because re- I had been very committed to just this this chemical imbalance story. It's quite shocking to me to, you know, read the leading scientists in the field, go and talk to some of the leading scientists in the field and realise how, 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 well, Professor Andrew Skull, the leading expert at Princeton University, says, it's, these were his words, it's deeply misleading and unscientific mm. to say depression is just caused by low serotonin. Or Dr. David Healy, one of the leading experts in Britain, who said, you can't even say that story's been discredited because there was never a time when it was credited. There was never a time when half the scientists in the field would have said depression was caused by low serotonin. That doesn't mean there's no value in chemical antidepressants. There's some yes. value in them, and we can talk about that if you want. But, But the, you know... I mean, scientists know better. This, what I'm putting forward, uh, you know, and I'm I'm just a journalist. What I'm reporting is the position of the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, which has been explaining for years that you know mental health has three kinds of cause: biological causes, which we've just talked about, psychological causes, how you think about yourself, and social mm. causes in in our environment. And like you say, there's lots of doctors who want to act on this, and I'm not critical of those. I'm critical of doctors who tell people a simplistic story because they should know better because the science shows better. But I'm not critical of doctors who, look, as a society, we've given doctors one lever to pull, right? Or maybe two. I mean, you could say antidepressants, chemical antidepressants, and um, and a little bit of therapy if, if you're lucky. Um, I don't criticize. Doctors have been confronted with genuinely distressed people. And as a society, we've given them two levers to pull. Um, so I don't criticize any doctor pulling those levers. So it's important to just talk about you know how, what we can do better, and where we I don't just I don't mean well, I don't mean we meaning doctors because I'm not a doctor, but I don't I don't just mean doctors can do better. I mean as a society we can do better. So I'll give you an example of one of the 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 the, the causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections, and then doctor who's been acting on it in a really interesting way with really fascinating mm. results. So we are the loneliest society there's ever been. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could call on in a crisis? I mean, they started doing it years ago. The most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none, right? It's not the average, but it's the most the most common answer. Um, Britain and Australia are just behind the United In fact, Australia is really high up on the collapse in social connections. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about this in the last couple of weeks because one of the people who taught me most about this, sadly, has, has just died. An incredible man called Professor John Cassiopo who was the leading expert in in loneliness in the world at the University of Chicago, and I interviewed him a lot. And Professor Cassiopo showed many things. He showed, for example, um, being acutely lonely releases as much of the stress hormone cortisol as being punched in the face by a stranger. It's devastating for human mm-hmm. beings. And he had an interesting thesis about why, which is kind of hard to prove, but I think makes perfect sense. You know, he says, why do, why, why do we exist, all three of us? Well, it's partly because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't faster than the animals they took down. They they weren't 
bigger than the animals they took down in lots of cases. What they were was much better at banding together in tribes and cooperating. Um, they were they were extremely good at forming tribes. Every instinct we have as a species is to do that, right? Just like bees evolved to need a hive, humans evolved to need a tribe. Mm-hmm. And we are the first humans ever to try to live without tribes. And you think about it, if those ancestors, if, if you got separated from the tribe, you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason, right? You were about to be eaten. Yeah. You were in terrible, terrible danger, right? That's the impulse we, we still have. Um, and, and so it's very interesting. So that is one of the nine causes of depression, anxiety, right? About disconnection from other people. And it's very interesting. Well, what's the antidepressant for that, right? And I learned from um, a wonderful man called Dr. Sam Everington. He's one of the heroes of my book. So Sam was and is a GP in East London, a very poor part of East London, where actually I, I lived for a long time, though sadly he was never my doctor. And Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of people coming to him with depression and anxiety, like general practitioners all over the Western world. And, you know, he had been taught at medical school. He knew the causes are much more complex depression than, than the just low serotonin. But he'd been told at medical school, just tell them they've got a chemical imbalance in their brains. And like me, Sam's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they have some some benefits for some people. But he could just see wasn't solving the problem for most people, right? It was taking the edge off some people's pain, and that has real value. But it wasn't solving the problem. So he decided to pioneer, for example, loneliness was one of the problems he identified, and for which there's overwhelming scientific evidence. Um, so he decided to pioneer a different approach. One day, a woman came to see him, who I got to know quite well, called Lisa Cunningham. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with crushing depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'm going to carry on giving you these drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. So there was an area behind the doctor's surgery that backed onto a park, a public park, and it was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. (laughs) And he said to Lisa, what I want you to do is turn up twice a week. I'll turn out and support you. And with a group of other depressed and anxious people, I want you to turn Dog Shit Alley into something beautiful. First meeting they had, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But several things happened as the group formed and as they began to meet. First was they had something to talk about that wasn't how shit they felt, right? Normally what we do is we either drug people or we give them a place to talk about how terrible they feel, both of which have some value. Um, But here they decided that they had something to talk about that was completely different. They decided they were going to learn gardening. These were inner city EastEnders and anything about gardening. They started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a very powerful antidepressant. Mm. Something else happened. They began to form a tribe. They began to get to know each other. And they did what human beings do when we solve, when we form tribes. They started to solve each other's problems, right? For example, one of the people in the group was sleeping on a public bus. Uh, they were horrified. They said, of course you're depressed if you're sleeping on a bus. And um, they started pressuring the local authority to get this guy housed. They succeeded. It was the first time they'd done something for someone else in years. It made them feel great. Um, the way Lisa put it to me, um, as the flowers began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program, part of a growing body of evidence, that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants in reducing, in, in moving people on what's called the Hamilton scale, which is how, how we measure depression, one of the ways of measuring depression. I think for a kind of obvious reason, right? It was dealing with the reasons why they were, two of the reasons why they were depressed and anxious in the first place, the disconnection from other people 
and the disconnection from the natural world. And I saw this everywhere I went in the world, from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco. The strategies that were most effective for dealing with depression and anxiety were the ones that dealt with the reasons why people were so depressed and anxious in the first place. It makes so much sense, and that's why I was drawn to your book. Because what I was seeing from my own life, it, it was just a match. I, I can't tell you exactly how I knew it, but when I read it and I and I started looking at the the causes, it made sense that the the anxiety and depression they were there for a reason, and not because of an imbalance, not because of being broken or defective in any way. They were real. Uh, real psychological reasons for their existence. There's another uh, guy out there that I know. His name is Farouk Radwan. You may, do, may have heard of him. But he has a website called To Know Myself. And he is stating very similar things to what you are. Oh, check him out. I mean, one of the, there were lots of moments, you know, a huge amount of what I learned for Lost Connections, I learned from reading scientific studies and, and from interviewing the kind of leading scientists in the world on these questions. But there were key moments for me when I, kind of things emotionally fell into place. One of them was I interviewed this South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield. And Derek happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when chemical antidepressants were first introduced in that country. And obviously the local Cambodian doctors didn't know what these drugs were. So Derek explained to them and they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of, you know, herbal remedy. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community, a rice farmer, who one day stood on a landmine left over from the war with the United States, and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial limb, and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's really painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. I'm imagining it was pretty, you know, traumatic for obvious reasons. He started to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed, classic depression. Um, so the Cambodian doctor said, oh, well, we gave him an antidepressant. And Derek said, what was it? They went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. It wasn't some irrational malfunction. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this situation that was causing him so much distress. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped within a month. He was fine. They said to Derek, so that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? And if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that it's just a chemical imbalance in your brain, that sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow, right? But what those doctors knew intuitively was precisely what the World Health Organization has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy, you're not broken, you're not a machine with malfunctioning parts, you're a human being with unmet needs and you need love and support and, and, and people around you to help you get those needs met. Mm. I just wanted to ask you just to get a bit of your own journey a little bit where like you, you, as a young child, you have, you, you had depression and you said all your life, every year that you've been alive, you've been, you've lived with depression, uh, which indicates to me that you still have depression in some way. What, what did you actually do yourself, realizing that the medication wasn't the answer? Well, I don't have depression now. Okay. And 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 I, I think there's 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 several, and I haven't for years now, but the um, for four or five years. But I would say 
I mean, not to say I don't still have periods of unhappiness, of course yeah. I do, but I don't become depressed. Um, we all do. The, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's part of being human. I think for me, um, my childhood um, depression was much more related to a very different one of the nine factors that I write about in, in Lost Connections, which was by far the hardest for me to research because it was so... Mm. I mean, some of the several of the other ones have played out in my life in, in complex ways, but uh, this one in particular had helped me to understand why I had stayed so committed to the chemical imbalance story, even when I knew at some level there was something not right there, because why would it be rising so much if it was just a problem internal to people's skulls? Um, yeah. So to explain this, to explain this cause of depression that I learned about, I had to tell you a story which for the first minute you're going to think, well, what's he talking about? Why is he telling <laughs> us this? Because uh, it sounds like a completely different thing. And it was because it was partly because it was an insight about depression that was stumbled onto actually from a different perspective. But it led to incredible breakthrough, both in identifying a key cause of depression and in a solution to that, which which helped me in my own life. Um, so in the mid 1980s, a doctor called Vincent Felitti was asked to do a research project. So it's in, it in San Diego in California, and um, the big one of the big not for medical not for profit medical providers in, in California, Kaiser Permanente, um, had um, had a big problem, just like medical providers all over the U.S. at that time and now, which was just obesity was hugely rising. And it was eating through their costs. It was devastating their patients. And they, nothing they were trying was working. Things like dietary advice, you know, that kind of thing was just making barely any difference at all. So they said to Dr. Felitti, gave him quite a big budget, and said, just do blue skies research and figure out what the hell we can do because we can't carry on like this. So Dr. Felitti started working with 350 severely obese people, people who weighed more than 400 pounds. He tried all sorts of different options. He's working with them and interviewing them. And one day, he had a kind of, what seems like a really dumb idea when you first hear it, which is he he just said, well, what would happen if really obese people just stopped eating? <laughs> and we gave them like vitamin supplements so they didn't get scurvy or whatever. Yeah. Would they just burn through the fat stores in their body, right? Until they got down to a healthy weight. So obviously with huge medical supervision they decided to try this and the crazy thing is in one sense it worked people for i'll tell you about a woman i'm going to call her susan to protect her medical confidentiality she went down from more than 400 pounds to 138 pounds crazy people were you know her family is celebrating they're telling dr feliti he saved her life and then one day something happened that no one expected susan freaked out went to KFC or whatever it was, starts obsessively eating and quite soon was back to a really dangerous way, not quite where she'd been, but a dangerous way. Oh. So Vincent called her in and he said, you know, Susan, what, what, what happened? And she looked down and said, I don't know, I don't know. And he said, well, tell me, tell me about the day that you cracked and went, went, to, went, to eat, went to start eating so much. Did anything happen that day? Turned out something had happened that day that had never happened to Susan. A man hit on her, not in an aggressive or nasty way, but a man had expressed sexual interest and flirted and, and hit on her. Mm. And she'd fled and, and started, you know, obsessively eating. Vincent then asked her, I think it was at a later session, he asked her, when did you start to put on weight? It turned out it was when she was 10. He said, well, did anything happen when you were 10 that didn't happen when you were 8, didn't happen when you were mm. 14, you know? She said, well, yeah, that, that's when my grandfather started raping me. Yep. 
it, it turned out when he interviewed everyone in the program, 55% of them had put on their weight in the aftermath of being sexually abused, which is such an extreme number and obviously so much higher than the general population. that he, Vincent was just kind of baffled by this. He began to, to realise that, well, he began to hypothesise that this thing that appears to be a pathology, obesity, and in one sense is a pathology, because it's obviously terrible for your health, was actually performing a really important function for these people. Um, it was protecting them from sexual attention. As, as Susan put it to him, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I need to be. Mm. But this was quite a small programme. So they decided to do, Vincent got funding from the CDC, the Centre for Disease Control, one of the biggest bodies in the US that funds medical research, to do a much bigger study. So everyone who came to Kaiser Permanente for medical care of any kind, from headaches to broken legs to schizophrenia, was given a questionnaire that, that Dr. Felitti wrote. And the first part said, did any of these bad things happen to you when you were a kid, right? And there were things that ranged from, you know, um, sexual abuse, neglect, um, physical abuse. And then he said, have you had any of these 10 problems as an adult? And it was things like obesity, addiction. And at the last minute, they added depression and suicide attempts. When the CDC calculated out the figures, there was I mean, there was just staggered. For every category of childhood trauma you experienced, you were two to four times more likely to become depressed. If you had experienced six of those categories, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide as an adult, and you were 4,600% more likely to have developed an addiction problem. I mean, just stagger it, but you don't get figures like that in epidemiology mm -hmm. very often. And I, I found this, you know, when I went to go and see Vincent Felitti the first time in San Diego, I remember leaving and being absolutely enraged by having spoken to him. And, and I was really puzzled by this because he's a really admirable man. He's a really, really good, decent man. And the research he's done is so important. And I was just furious. And it was only when I reflected more on it that I kind of... So <clears throat> so when I, when I was a child, I had experienced some very extreme acts you know um, my mother was, was very ill my dad was in a different country and I'd experienced some very <clears throat> extreme acts from an adult in my life and you know I, I you know I want to think one of the reasons I liked the chemical imbalance theory is because it meant I didn't have to think about any of that and yeah. what Dr Felitti was effectively saying although I didn't tell him about my own personal experience was you're going to have to re you know this thing still has power over you and you're, you're going to have to think about this and it's going to it's playing out in your life now and I felt really enraged to be made to to think about that but you know one of the reasons I'm glad I stayed with it is because of what Dr. Felitti discovered next which is people who'd indicated on these these forms that they'd experienced childhood trauma their doctor was told next time they come in don't call them back in but next time they come in for anything just say to them something like I see that when you were a child, you were sexually abused or, or whatever it was. I'm really sorry that happened. That should never have happened to you. Would you like to talk about it? And a significant minority of people said, no, I don't want to talk about it. But most people did want to talk about it. The average conversation lasted five minutes, um, at the end of which it was randomized. Some of them were told, I can refer you to a therapist to talk about this more if you want, but not everyone. And what was incredible was just that, 
five minute conversation of an authority figure saying, I'm really sorry, this shouldn't have happened. That alone led to a really significant reduction in depression and anxiety. And the people who referred to discuss it more got an even bigger fall, which fits with, I think, fits with a, a wider body of research by people like Professor James Pennebaker at Florida State University into shame. We know that shame destroys people, right? Um, we know, for example, during the AIDS crisis, closeted gay men died two years later, sorry, died two years earlier than, than openly gay men, even when they got health care at the same time. Shame is devastating for human beings and giving people an opportunity to release their shame is a very powerful antidepressant. So I think for me, while there were many factors to answer your question, there are many factors that played out um, in my own life that I talk about in the book. Um, for me, that childhood trauma one was uh, the reason I think that was the, ma the main reason why mm. I, I developed childhood, I developed depression as early as I did. Yeah. It's not to say the other factors wouldn't have played out in my life to some degree because they would have done. But I think I was the biggest determinant by a long way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't surprise me you saying that either. That all, And I'll, I will say everyone I work with is always going back to an emotional an emotional attachment as a child and the beliefs that they've created around that that mm -hmm. like like Susan as you mentioned because if if I am if I am slim and, and attractive I will you know I will be raped if I am if I am overweight and obese I am safe so yeah there's a lot of this stuff is that emotional attachment to something that's happened in childhood there was this really interesting, one of the other people who was involved in that research was a man called Dr. Robert Ander. He said to me, when you're confronted with people who are, you know, obese or addicted or depressed, um, we need to stop asking what's wrong with you and start asking what happened to you. Yeah. Changing the conversation. Yeah. And so many of the causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about, and that's one of the nine that I that I talk about and, and then that that release of shame is one of the different kinds of antidepressant that make up the kind of last third of the book you know I guess a good example of, of several things one is that, that childhood trauma example is a good example of how when you reframe the problem you can find different solutions right mm. so you can see if you had just told Susan well you've just got a chemical imbalance in your brain you can see how that would prevent her, that would have prevented Dr. Felicity from this insight to process, Susan from understanding what was really going on in her life. Mm. It would have prevented her from, from, from uh, you know, releasing her shame and, and getting to a better place. Mm. It really so, made me realise how kind of unethical it is to just tell people this simplistic biological story. I felt quite, you know, and again, for all the reasons that we talked about, this isn't about criticising individual doctors, but you know, it seems incredible to me. 13 years, I was given very powerful drugs. Never once did any doctor say to me, is there any reason you might feel this way? You know, and I don't want to, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to answer. I probably wouldn't have been able to access those things, certainly not early in the process. But, you know, what an incredible thing that we have a healthcare system and a society that doesn't ask these questions, right? And I think that's partly because we've been diverted by these overly biological stories now it's not that there's no truth in biological stories like we talked about your genes play a really significant role um there are real brain changes that happen when you become depressed that do make it harder to get out they don't cause the initial problem but they do make it harder to get out um there are um things like bipolar depression which do have a more heavily biological component although they also have the the social and psychological components that, that we're talking about so there's, there's a lot of things going on here but the, it's not that biology plays no role but it plays a really significant role. 
but we've only told stories about biology for way too long now, right? Or not only, but overwhelmingly, you know, and I, and I do think when you understand the problem differently, it opens up different solutions. And for each of the nine causes of depression, anxiety that I learned so much about, each of them, not the biological ones, but for the other seven, for the social and psychological ones, understanding them gave me a very different sense of a different set of of solutions that we can you know that that, that we can yeah. pursue sometimes as individuals and often as society as a society yeah it's a fascinating conversation i uh so this one woman susan um once that conversation happened what happened to her afterwards so i didn't uh, i i know about her through dr feliti so I don't know, um, but I know what happened to patients on average and generally, which is that um, after being given opportunities to, to express, to, well, after being told by an authority figure, this should never have happened to you. I'm really sorry. That led to significant reduction in mental health problems over the following year in the CDC research. So with Susan, a specific individual, I don't I don't know. But um, but if she was part of the general trend, then she will have experienced a reduction in a significant reduction in depression and anxiety. Yes, I would think so. So for th- those who are listening to us today, if they want to get more information about you, they want to get your book and so on, how can they find you? So I have been told by my publishers to say this little spiel, which I now feel like a terrible advertising jingle writer when I say this. So I apologize for how canned and awful this sounds. But I meant to say, if you would like to know what a range of people from Hillary Clinton to Elton John to Russell Brand to Naomi Klein to Glenn Greenwald have said about the book, if you want to know where to get either the book or the audio book, if you want to hear audio of lots of the experts we've been talking about in this interview and lots of other people talking about depression, uh, and if you want to take a quiz to see how much you know about the real causes of depression and anxiety, you can go to www thelostconnections.com it's thelostconnections.com not lostconnections.com because annoyingly I didn't know this when I chose the title for the book there was a band years ago called Lost Connections um, (laughs) who own all the websites Um, and you can also find out there where to follow me on Twitter Facebook and Instagram although I had a weird experience recently where I did an interview and they said oh what's your Twitter what's your Facebook what's your Instagram and then at the end they were like what's your um, what's your Snapchat and I said I'm a 39-year-old man. <laughs> I've gone a long way to get my message out there. I'm not going... Like, the only 39-year-old men on Snapchat are people you should be very suspicious of anyway. So, yeah, I will, there's a limit to what I'll do. But, uh, yeah, I'm very happy to do all the rest. Fantastic. We'll get Thank those you links so up. much. Hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking to you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, yeah. Uh, you're, you're more than welcome. Uh, cheers. So, yeah, so for those of you who've been listening to us today, my name is Nathan Siegel. I'm with my colleague Hamish Baston out of Australia. We're the Thought Hackers. And with us today has been Johan Hari. And we thank you for tuning in to us today, for listening to us. And we will catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thought Hackers. And regardless of where you are on your journey, whether you would like to be a guest and share your story, or if you are still living with pain each day, please get in touch and we will help you where we can. Simply send an email to hamish at thethoughthackers.com.